our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Winston Churchill once said, The price of greatness is responsibility. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. And I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 995th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. And we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website messages, Facebook, and our chat board. So, let's get started. Jonathan, what's the question, what's the subject for today? Well, Rick, our question is, what made John the Baptist so special? And our theme text is found in John chapter 1, verse 23. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So, every so often, someone comes along who stands out from the crowd, someone who distinguishes themselves from their peers by their manner, their motivation, and their mission. They don't seem to fit into any comfortable category, for theirs is a mission that has world-changing implications, and such missions are not common and, least of all, comfortable. With such a description, we would typically and rightfully envision Jesus as its object. But today, today we focus on another. Today we focus on John the Baptist, the man who prepared the people for Jesus, the man who stood alone as a powerful voice that pointed to the Redeemer of all men. John the Baptist uniquely epitomized greatness. Where did he come from? What did he do, and how did he do it? So, Jonathan, this is going to be a really cool conversation because, I, you know, I've gone over the life of John the Baptist a hundred times, but this time, for some reason, it was like bells were ringing saying, pay attention, son, pay attention. He was special, Rick. He was. Now, folks, look, it's always our objective with each subject that we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant, practical Way We search out the context of the scriptures that we cite, we try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. And don't forget, simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world, and we may even include your comments on the air. All right, ChristianQuestions.com, that's where you find the chat board, that's where you can get involved in the conversation. So, Jonathan, here's the thing. The first thing, and very important thing, is everything about John the Baptist was unique. Everything beginning with the conditions of his birth. Now, 
it's interesting because many people in Scripture, many people in the Bible can be better understood by examining where they came from. So we want to start by looking at where John came from because we're talking about greatness. We're talking about the greatness of John the Baptist. And what we're going to find is the greatness of John the Baptist was in place long before John the Baptist was there. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So that's just two lines of scripture, but Jonathan, there is a ton of really important, relevant information here that helps us to understand the heritage of John the Baptist. First of all, let's go to the names of his parents. And in scripture, we know that names are really important, right? They really are. And Rick, Zacharias means remembered of Jehovah. Okay, remembered of Jehovah. So, remembered of God. So, someone kind of special in God's mind. That's important. Elizabeth, what does the, the name Elizabeth mean? Well, Rick, it means oath of God. All right, so an oath or a promise of God. Remembered of God and an oath of God. So, their parents' names kind of give you a sense of very, very uh, close ties with honoring and praising and worshiping and following God Almighty. Remembered of Jehovah and oath of God. In that verse that you read, Jonathan, it said that Zacharias, remembered of Jehovah is the meaning of his name, was of the division or of the course of Abijah. What, 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 who, what is that all about? The eighth of the 24 orders of courses into which David divided the priests. Of these courses, only four remained after the captivity, which were again subdivided into 24, retaining the ancient name and order of each. They took the whole temple service for a week each. So you have these 24 orders or courses of the house of Levi, and the reason for dividing, it's, it's like 24 teams, if you will, that were supposed to do the work that was required uh, in, in terms of sacrificing and the, all of the work of the, of the temple and or the, or the uh, you know, any, any worship work that had to be done. So you have Zacharias is in the eighth of these 24 courses, so he's, he's one of the 24 teams which has very distinct and clear responsibilities of worship. That's quite a heritage, Rick. It is. It is because there aren't that many people involved in that. Right. So, and they would be on for a week, you know, doing all of the work, you know, that was required in the temple and so forth. So that's his dad. Um, now, it says of Elizabeth, and remember, Elizabeth means oath of God. It just kind of casually mentions in that first verse that you read that his wife, Elizabeth, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Okay, what Lightfoot has some pretty good commentary on that. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. The priests might marry into any tribe, but it was most commendable of all to marry one of the priest's line. So Aaron was the line of the priesthood. So 
the fact that Zacharias married someone from the tribe of, 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 of Aaron, one of the daughters of Aaron, not the tribe of Aaron, one of the daughters of Aaron, really shows you that sticking to the highest level of worship by Zacharias and Elizabeth. So you get a sense that their lives were really locked in on serving God. And you say, okay, well, we're supposed to be talking about John the Baptist. And in our world today, Jonathan, people forget that we are a product of our parents. That's right. And his parents had devotion to God. Right. And as a matter of fact, let's read verse 6 of Luke chapter 1. You read verse 5. Now, verse 6 says what? They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Okay. So, again, we're going to take this verse apart a little bit. So, the two of them, Zacharias and Elizabeth, walked blamelessly in all of the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown has a couple of lines on that. The one expressing their moral, the other their ceremonial obedience. So, moral obedience to the commandments, ceremonial obedience to the ordinances. So, there's a lot of subtlety in these couple of verses, but they are powerfully full of the things that are necessary to understand the heritage that John the Baptist came from. His parents were faithful. They were on it with their entire lives in terms of putting God first. And you'd think that, you know, especially in the Old Testament, when there were those who were really, really honoring God, you know, there was a lot of physical blessing. That's right. And childbearing is one of them, right? Right. But the interesting thing about Zacharias and Elizabeth is in verse 7 of of, of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So, you know, it's interesting because in those days, not having children was kind of looked at as a sign, well, you must have been something wrong. You you know, you must not be as faithful as you should be. And didn't have to mean that. I I bet it weighed on their conscience, though. I'm sure. I'm sure it did. So Elizabeth being barren, though, not having children, and they were getting older now, so they would have been older parents. This shows the will of God in the birth of John the Baptist, not the will of men. And I think that's important because God is about to introduce to the world the greatest prophet of all time, according to the words of Jesus. He spoke that about John, that John later, uh, about John later. So we're, we're looking at the parents of John the Baptist and looking at their heritage and what they stood for and who they were and, and, and what was important to them. And Jonathan, we see nothing but complete, complete faithfulness. And this brings us to our very first greatness ingredient. Throughout today's podcast, we're going to introduce, I think there's nine greatness ingredients. So the first one is what we call circumstantial preparation. So explain, what is this greatness ingredient, circumstantial preparation? Well, Rick, the man chosen to pave the way for Jesus needed strong parental influence to raise him and teach him godly reverence and godly knowledge. So you can see that this first ingredient for greatness was strong parental influence in the case of John the Baptist. God chose this couple because they were firm and he knew that they would naturally guide him 
in the way that he should go because his job would be so important later on in life. So the first ingredient of greatness here, the first greatness ingredient is circumstantial preparation. The circumstances surrounding the life of one who becomes great are in place for a reason. They're in place for that development. And for John, it's strong parental influence. And again, Jonathan, sadly, in today's world, we are missing strong parental influence. It's so true. So true. We, you know, it, as a matter of fact, it seems to be in a lot of circles, the idea of, oh, well, let your kids figure it out themselves seems to be the better parenting. And that could not be any further from truth. That's Ch- correct. You're right. Chil- and, you know, Rick, on a personal note, um, your, your parents were quite an inspiration to me in my early stages of, of following in Jesus' footsteps. I had the privilege of living in their home for six months. And wow, what examples of uh, reverence and godly knowledge did I receive in watching how they honored the Lord and how much they loved each other. It was amazing to me. Yeah, well, I got to live there for 20 years, so there. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You were blessed, brother. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, and strong parental influence. So, folks, look, if you are a parent— Consider it a calling to the greatness, the potential greatness of your children to bring them up with that strong guidance of godliness in their lives. And and, and Jonathan, let's go back to the point about uh, the appearance of not having children. Again, in those days, not having children would have been like, oh, you know, what did you do wrong? Do you do wrong? Well, appearances do not always reflect reality. Barrenness, though it was, was considered a lack of faith, in the case of Zacharias and Elizabeth, it was considered a, uh, a statement of faith because of what was to come. And this is told to us by the angel that comes to Zacharias and explains all of this to him in Luke chapter 1. We'll read verses 13, verse 13, then jump to 15 and 16. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So the angel is telling Zacharias, and you were right, you know, it was on their hearts, your petition has been heard, and you're going to have a child. So now they had been petitioning probably for, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it was, a long time. That's right, yeah. Okay, so that petition had been heard, and their child, Jonathan, would be a great man. And so it's interesting because the angel says he will be great in the sight of the Lord, uh, and he will be filled with God's Spirit, even while in his mother's womb. So there is something really special about the greatness being prepared for John the Baptist. This brings us to our second greatness ingredient, and that is access to necessary tools. What is that in terms of generality and then John the Baptist? Well, Rick, the man chosen to pave the way for Jesus needed clear and focused access to God's influence to achieve the greatness of his calling. See, we don't get how difficult it would have been to be John standing alone doing what he had to do. And so God saw fit to give him a direct dose of his spirit right through his entire life, his power, his influence, so that as his parents taught him, he could grasp it 
and have a, a stronger understanding. So you had the first greatness ingredient was circumstantial preparation. That meant, you know, strong parental influence. This one, necessary tools. In this case, the Spirit of God. You know, in their lives, God is glorifying them in their older age to have this miracle child. Think of the, the, the gift that they're given at such an old age to have a child. That's a miracle within itself. But then they were told the mission that this child would have in, their li- in his life. Wow, that, that's beyond anything you can imagine. Well, yeah. When, when, if you're going to have a son and you are told he's going to be like Elijah, I mean, when you think about the greatness of prophets that stood for God and they stood against the tide, Elijah is one of them that comes right to the top every single time. And, and you're told that your son is going to be in the spirit of Elijah bringing the people back to God. That's it. You're right. That is a powerful, humbling, incredible experience. That was their greatness. See, their greatness was shown by the child that they bore. The greatness of John began with the greatness of his parents in their worship of God, and it began with God himself putting the preparation all exactly in place. So we can certainly see how much preparation was needed even before John was born. We can, so let's go deeper. John the Baptist was set to be a prophet of God even before birth. Did this override Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. Sorry about that, Jonathan. I brought that music up a little early on you. Did this override his free choice was the question you were asking. And you know, let's talk about that. This whole idea of our free will is really easily misunderstood. Every child born is taught and told things from infancy up, not only by their parents, but by a whole host of other influencers as, and, as well. And we never complain about those things. To teach John that he would be a chosen vessel of God was simply raising him up in the way that he should go. So no, it didn't override his free choice. It gave him the guidance necessary for him to be able to choose the job that he was able and capable and actually chosen to do. You know, he was choosing the job that he was chosen to do. You've got to to do the kind of work he did with the conviction that he did it. He had to be sold out to it. You don't get sold out to something by having your arm twisted. You get sold out to something by dedicating yourself. And his parents were chosen because of their loyalty and their love for God. Exactly. And God knew that they were the ones in charge to help fulfill this destiny for their son. Right, right. So we got a great quote here on greatness from George Bernard Shaw. Just do what must be done. This may not be happiness, but it is greatness. And you think of Zechariah and Elizabeth in that. They just did what had to be done. They hadn't had a child for their entire lives, and they were, but they were just working and honoring and worshiping and praising God all along anyway. And their greatness, like you said, was rewarded with this incredible glory that they were given. Just incredible. So, Jonathan, let's go to a, an example, a more modern-day example of greatness. And this is an individual 
who stood out in so many ways, and I have found in my many views of his life to be very, just utterly, utterly inspiring. We're talking about Martin Luther King Jr., and this is, uh, we're going to excerpt a, a, a sermon that he gave in a church about moral excellence. And, and he talks about, he's going to get into talking about greatness, but, uh, and this was a speech he was giving on, on being a servant, and when you think about the greatness of the man, Martin Luther King Jr., you think about the idea of being a servant, and how do you combine the greatness with servitude? Well, again, we're going to excerpt this throughout the rest of the podcast, but let's just listen. I want you to be first in moral excellence. I want you to be first in generosity. That is what I want you to do. And he transformed the situation by giving a new definition of greatness. And you know how he said it? He said, now, brethren, I can't give you greatness. And really, I can't make you first. This is what Jesus said to James and John. You must earn it. True greatness comes not by favoritism, but by fitness. And the right hand and the left are not mine to give. They belong to those who are prepared. What a powerful statement. You know, James and John, you know, come to him, hey, you know, can I be on your right and, you know, my brother on your left hand kind of a thing in the kingdom. And Jesus stops and says, look, that's not mine to give. And, uh, you know, are you ready to do, follow in my footsteps truly? And he, his message to them was, you've got to be fit. And even then, it's God's choice, not mine. So it's not by favoritism, but by fitness. That's where greatness truly comes from. Greatness doesn't go to the people who are favored in all of the things and the advantages of life. And we're going to see John the Baptist did not grow up and lead an advantaged life. I mean, no, he, he didn't. Okay. <laughs> but what we are going to see is he grew up and he lived a great life because it was so thoroughly driven. So what was the source? You know, in, in when, when the angel is describing to Zechariah the description of Zechariah' son, John, he tells him you're going to name him John, uh, what was the source of the command for Zechariah for his son to be separated? It was a, it was a simple thing from the Old Testament. That's right, Rick. It was the Nazarite vow. Right. Now, there were three outward elements of the Nazarite vow. And we're going to look at Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, because that's where the Nazarite vow is laid out for us. And Nazarite has nothing to do with being a Nazarene, as you might think. Nazarite is, is a vow of, of, of dedication, of, of being sanctified, of being set apart. So the first element, outward element of this vow, is what, uh, is what you did and did not eat and drink. Numbers chapter 6, Jonathan, let's just do verses 1 through 4 right now. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. 
all the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even to the skin. So you think, well, what, are you prejudiced against grapes? <laughs> but you know, it really is a matter of, these must be the grapes of wrath, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, what it's boiling down to is nothing that has to do with the possibility of, of fermentation. And so, the, see, what, the, the idea that comes through in my mind is his life is going to be sober. It's going to be utterly clearly, totally, unequivocally sober, and it's going to be reflected in what he eats and drinks, or what he does not eat and what he does not drink. The second outward element of this vow shown to us in numbers is the appearance, what you kind of what you looked like. And, and it was very specific of how you were supposed to be uh, holding up this vow. Verse 5 of uh, Numbers chapter 6. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. Okay, so however long somebody is going to be taking up this Nazarite vow, you stop shaving and you stop cutting your hair. And, you know, that tends to get a little wild after a while, I would think. (laughs) 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 So I'll tell you, when my hair even grows over my ears, I have a hard time and I get restless. (laughs) 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 But anyway, but, you know, so the appearance was, and you think about it, okay, in in the first part, it's like, be very sober. But the second one is almost like, but, you know, kind of have that wild-eyed look to you. I don't know. It just is is kind of a strange (laughs) combination. That is. And, and. And again, to me, what it's, it's stressing is have all of your attention on what it is you're doing, and everything else is just not material. It just doesn't matter. And I think, to me, that's what comes out of that second, uh, that second outward element of, of this Nazarite vow. And we're reading from Numbers, and that's where they would have gotten the instruction for how their son, John, was supposed to grow up. He was supposed to grow up and be like this throughout his whole life, it sounds like. So the third outward element of this vow, the first one was what you eat or do not eat and what you drink and do not drink. The second was your appearance. The third is what you did and did not do. Verses six and verses six through eight of Numbers chapter six. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister. When they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. All right, so it takes several verses to describe, don't be touching dead people, because that would make you unclean. And of course, in those days, Jonathan, you know, know, the, the... the ability to control disease was very, very difficult to to contain. And the interesting thing about the Jewish heritage is there was all a whole bunch of washing and cleaning in in their early, early history, which was way ahead of the curve to the rest of the nations of the world. But That's right. You stay away from those things because you're about the will of God. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's the important thing. All the days of your separation, you are holy. You are set apart. Your will will not be your own. You will be doing the holy work of God, whatever it happens to be. That's what a Nazarite vow was supposed to bring somebody to. So that's a pretty serious thing, to raise up a child like that. 
That's for sure. It's a dedication. You've got to be focused to make sure that they don't uh, trip up. And that's why his parents had to be the right people. They had to be steeped in understanding the law and steeped in following the law themselves so it wouldn't be something new or unusual. Again, the greatness of Zecharias and Elizabeth is reflected in the fact that John did grow up to do the work that he was supposed to do. So just another comment on this Nazarite vow from another commentator, this time from John Gill. There were various sorts of Nazarites. Some were appointed by God as Samson, some were devoted by their parents as Samuel, and some by themselves, concerning whom is this law more especially. Some were perpetual Nazarites, a Nazarite for life, as the two persons just mentioned, though the Jews distinguished between a Samsonian Nazarite and the perpetual one, and some were only for a certain time accorded according as they vowed. So several different levels of being a Nazarite. Sometimes it was for life, as in the case of Samson and the case of Samuel and the case of John the Baptist, and others were just for a period of time. Any case, though, you were focused, you were clear, you were dedicated, you were about the work of God, period. Nothing else should have mattered to you. And that, that's the important thing here. Um, interesting side note, Samson and Samuel were also born to mothers who had previously been barren and were both dedicated to God's service, just as John was. Matter of fact, in Secret Rewind, the bonus material for this, this uh, podcast, this episode, we've got more on Samson and Samuel and others who were born to barren parents and the meaning of that, because it's a fascinating side study that we just don't have time to go into. And to sign up for CQ Rewind, you go to ChristianQuestions.com, hit the newsletter sign-up tab, and register for our CQ Rewind outline, full of graphics and illustrations. It's a topical Bible study with a lot of topics to choose from, Rick. Okay, so CQ Rewind, the full edition, free service, sign up for it now, ChristianQuestions.com or on your Christian Questions app. So Jonathan, we're going to go to our third greatness ingredient. The first one was circumstantial preparation, strong parental influence. The second was Uh, ingredient was access to necessary tools. For John, it was the Holy Spirit. The third greatness ingredient here is what we call experiential grooming. And the grooming is not meant to be a a joke because, you know, you had this hair that you weren't supposed to cut. But the, the grooming of your experiences, explain that. Greatness is a result of being groomed by your learning and experiences to fulfill the difficulties of your task at hand. So, your experiences before you are called upon for greatness groom you for that greatness should you be able to be successful in it. Now, sometimes in our experiences, we may have failures in our previous experiences, but that still can groom you for the greatness that the Lord calls you to. And so in the case of John, there was the guiding for how he was supposed to grow up and what was supposed to be important and all of that. For us, maybe we didn't come from that. I mean, you didn't come from that kind of a background. You know, you were no. uh, a loose cannon for a while there, wouldn't you? <laughs> I was. I was indeed. But, but, uh, but thankfully, I can learn from those mistakes and help others that are stumbling in ways that I did. Right, right. And see, that's part of the grooming. So whatever the past was can be grooming us. Because, folks, it's not just about the greatness of John the Baptist. I mean, we're already talking about his parents. But what about you? What about what kind of greatness do you have the opportunity to fulfill in the service of God? It's not greatness so people can pat you on the back. It's greatness so people can praise God. 
What is it in you that can bring others to see the greatness of God? What kind of greatness can come out in you? Experiential grooming. Let's go back to the uh, description of John the Baptist to Zacharias by the angel, back in Luke chapter 1, because he says a little bit more here that gives us more of a sense of the power and the greatness of John himself. Luke 1, 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he is being told specifically, John's father, Zacharias, is being told, he's going to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. That is a powerful, powerful, powerful picture. Uh, So he can turn the hearts of the people back to God. That's what Elijah was called upon to do. So when we look at John and we look at his appearance, it's very, very distinct. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. All right, that's a great diet to have there, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine eating a locust. Yeah, well, you know, and and some of the commentators say they weren't really locusts, but other things, I'm not sure. We're not going to go into that. That's not relative. What's relative is that he had a limited kind of a diet, and it was very strict and very clear. And it says he, he was walked around clothed in camel's hair, which is a, a very gruff and rough-looking uh, appearance. He had a leather belt, and then his hair was just not cut, and his beard was just not shaven. Let's take a look at somebody else who looked very similar. Let's, similar. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He said to them, What kind of man who was he came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. So just by describing what he looked like, Elijah was known. Just by describing what he looked like, John the Baptist was known. And when it says he was a hairy man, uh, several commentators say that's probably referring to his clothing and being that of camel's hair or some such thing. So John, you know, if you have John and and Elijah talking to each other, you know, if you could have had that happen, they would have been like, well, now there's two cut from the same cloth (laughs) (laughs) or the same camel's hair or something, not cloth. (laughs) But, you know, they look a little bit bit wild, a little bit out there, but they are about God's business. So this brings us to the next greatness ingredient, our fourth greatness ingredient— is discipline. Go ahead. Greatness requires not only preparation, it also requires complete follow-through. John was disciplined enough to live his role with zeal and completeness. Okay. So the next the so so now we're beginning to touch on the actual greatness of John. Discipline is the first piece. And he lived the part. He looked the part. He looked kind of like Elijah, and he spoke kind of like Elijah because they were both about the same kind of work, just at very, very different times. Complete follow-through is what this was about. John had enough discipline to live his life that way. This wasn't an act. This wasn't, okay, I have to go to work now for 40 hours a week. This is exactly the way John the Baptist lived. So, We're looking at greatness, but up to now, it's only theoretical. It is only theoretical up to this point, 
So far, we have seen John being prepared for his work. What was his work? What did he actually do? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. The work of John the Baptist would prove to be powerful, dangerous, transformational, and short-lived. According to prophecy, he had but one mission to prepare the Jewish world for the coming of their Messiah. To speak of this task for us is easy. To accomplish this task for him, it would require the full bending of all his will and all his energy to this one goal. And Jonathan, I don't know if we can say that enough. This would require every ounce of energy because he was to be so different on every level for every moment of his life. There is no, there's no compromising here. And it required incredible greatness and the power of God to have him be able to do uh, such things. Great quote that really does kind of capture this from Lucius Aeneas Seneca. It is a rough road that leads to the heights of greatness. And boy, when you talk about a rough road, John the Baptist was one of those individuals who had a really rough road. To receive daily inspiration and hope, Find us at CQ Bible Podcast on Facebook, CQ Bible Podcast on Instagram, and CQ Bible Podcast on Twitter, and CQ Bible Podcast on YouTube. No, you didn't even want me to interrupt you, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> it's That's all the all same. One word, CQ Bible Podcast, social media used for good. All right, and folks, you know, social media can just cripple people these days. Well, we want you to begin to think about social media like you never have before. Think of it in terms of goodness, of stimulating greatness, of mutual encouragement, of finding tools to help you in whatever great work God has got for you to do. So, CQ Bible Podcast is the way to find us. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Jonathan, let's go back to Martin Luther King Jr. in that speech, on that sermon he gave on serving. And uh, here he really sort of lays the challenge out for everyone about, you know, greatness is not just for a few, but it can be for many if we want it to be. And so Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognize wonderful if you want to be great wonderful but recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant that's a new definition of greatness by giving that definition of greatness it means that everybody can be great because everybody can serve one of the things about martin luther king jr he had a way of making things simple Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. And the greatest level of greatness achieved by any human at any time is in service. And in, in these cases, it's in service to God Almighty, uh, fulfilling the prophecies that John the Baptist fulfilled. And of course, then the greatest human being ever was Jesus who came right after John. So and now, Rick, the, the best picture is 
our Lord washing the disciples' feet. Right. Proving the point, now you serve. The night before he is to be crucified, that's what he does. So, you know, you think about it, and you think about the two examples we're looking at. And we're going to talk about Jesus, not in this segment, but the next segment, Jesus and John together. But now, let's really focus on the work of John, the greatness and the humility that, that John showed. Let's look at John's work now. Luke chapter 3, we're going to read selected verses from 1 through 16. And Jonathan, as you begin this reading, verses 1 through 6, you know me, I'll just keep interrupting you you again and again and again. <laughs> now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. Okay, so so stop right there. The word came to John in the wilderness. So what that tells us is John knew he had work to do. John already had God's spirit. So he was probably chomping at the bit, just ready to go. He didn't do anything until he was clearly instructed. He was already dedicated, he was already ready, he was already on call. But when the word of God came to him in the wilderness, then he sprang into action. So all of that preparation, the greatness of his parents that was poured into him, the greatness of God's spirit working in his life, just waited until God said, now it's your time. Go ahead. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. See, John knew that he was that voice that was given in the prophecy of Isaiah. John knew what that voice was supposed to proclaim. And we know John knew it, because if you look at John one twenty three, you won't read that verse now, but in John one twenty three, the Pharisees come to him and say, okay, you know, are you the Christ? And he says, no. They say, well, who are you? And he says, I am the one, the voice crying in the wilderness. So John unmistakably knew that he was there to serve a clear, specific, dynamic person, pur- a purpose. And it took a clear, specific, and dynamic person to fulfill that kind of purpose. So the fifth greatness ingredient is all about this part. This fifth greatness ingredient is a clearly defined purpose. Go ahead. The most telling measurement of greatness is the clarity and importance of its purpose. See, up to this point, until the last point of discipline, we were talking about all the preparation before John. A lot of things went into preparing the way for John so he could be prepared the way for Jesus. Now we're looking at John specifically. And folks, this is where we see greatness unfolding very rapidly and very powerfully. His clearly defined purpose gave us a sense of being able to measure what it is that that greatness was bringing. You can tell the greatness of a man or a woman by by what the purpose is. And, you know, there's all kinds of purposes in this world. Some are great, some are not so great, and some are are pretty evil. The greatest purposes require the greatest leadership. And John was one of those individuals, clearly focused on the, the, the clarity and importance of his purpose. So John takes this clarity and boldly speaks as no one, had, no one had spoken for the last 400 years as a direct mouthpiece of God. His general message was one of brutal honesty with no allowance for excuses. 
Rick, 400 years of silence from God, that must have been very discouraging for the Israelites. Think of all those generations that never had that connection that others did in the past. Yeah, so, and, and when you look back in the Old Testament, the last prophet of the Old Testament is Malachi. Pretty much the last words of Malachi were to introduce John. Pretty much. So, but you have that, those introduction words spoken and then 400 years of prophetic silence. Now, during those 400 years, you're right, Jonathan, not only was it difficult, but that's the time when Greek influence began to grow by leaps and bounds and began to corrupt Judaism. And a lot of the Jewish thinking started to go down the wrong pathways. That's where Jewish thinking began to adopt the idea of an immortal soul. In the Old Testament, it wasn't so. It was through Greek philosophy that it turned them. So you're right, it was not only discouraging, but it was damaging all that happened in those 400 years. So when John came, he had a really important and powerful and difficult task in front of him. So he knew he's the voice to introduce Jesus. How does he go about doing that? Let's go to back to Luke chapter 3. Let's go to verses 7 through 9. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And Rick, just a quick side note, in Matthew 3, 7, which is the parallel text to this, the context shows that the Pharisees and Sadducees just walked into John's view, and he's looking at them when he said those words, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath of God. And continuing, therefore bear fruits in keeping the repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, and powerful words from John. I mean, he's he's bursts onto the scene and all of a sudden he's saying all these really powerful, strong, challenging things. His first message here is really simple. His first message is God is sovereign and deserves your reverence. So repent of your sins. And that is the message that he went back to again and again and again. Repent of your sins. Don't stay sinful. You've got to come back to God. You've got to repent, change direction. Get your head right, get your heart right. Right, right. And, and you, for Jesus to have an, an effect on someone, they, this was the way to get them ready for him to get their head right and then get their heart right so they could be opened up to the teaching of the Messiah. So as we continue in Luke chapter 3, uh, we're going to be picking up with verses uh, uh, verse uh, 10 and 11. John's boldness, uniqueness, honesty, and message garnered sincere interest. He was powerful and he was captivating. And people would come to him and say, okay, you're making sense. You're, you're touching my conscience. Kind of different groups of people say, well, you know, what, what, what should I do? Let's go to a 10 and 11. And the crowds were questioning him saying, then what should we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Except for me, I eat my locusts and honey, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but what he's saying, really, you know, when you try to sum up that message, because the people are saying, well, what should we do? You want us to repent of our sins. How do we show our repentance? Which is a great question. His answer is really simple. His answer is, 
Love your neighbor uh, as yourself, okay? Treat your neighbor with love, with kindness, with, with, with dignity, and you're all, you're all the same. So, and again, when Jesus summed up the law, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's what was John was saying originally, right? God is sovereign. That's right. And then love your neighbor as yourself. So the messages are very, very parallel. Well, other groups came up to him. Let's go to verse 12 and 13 of uh, Luke chapter 3. And some tax collectors also called to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. All right, so tax collectors. Now, they had the, the courage to go up to John, and they were looked down upon by the rest of society, all right? And they say, well, what should we do? He didn't say, well, quit your job. He said, make sure you collect only the taxes you're supposed to. So his message, his third message, was to uphold the law, to respect your neighbor as your equal. So first it's to love your neighbor, and now it's to respect your neighbor. So you started with God is sovereign, love him. Love your neighbor, respect your neighbor. So that was the third message. Let's go now to the fourth message, because again, every group, every part of society is now coming to him saying, you're making so much sense, what do I need to do? So now we're uh, verse, uh, verse 14 of Luke chapter 3. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What should we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So, you know, John, in this wild-eyed, wild-looking state, you look at the guy and say, there can't be so much to him. He's, he, you know, he's got this crazy look about him. But he is showing incredible wisdom and perception and understanding of human nature an understanding of what it takes to turn that human nature toward God. So he says to the soldiers, his fourth message is use strength and power justly and contentedly. When you think about that, we have forgotten how to use power in a contented way. We think that when you get power, it should be exploited. John is saying, don't do that. Use the strength and power of being a soldier in a contented way and in a just way. So it's God is sovereign. Love your neighbor. Respect your neighbor. And use whatever strength and power you have in your life justly and with contentment. And now let's go to verses 15 to 16 of Luke, Luke chapter 3 to finish summing up the, the message of John the Baptist. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John, as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here, the natural reaction of the people is that this man is different than everybody else. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the Christ. Maybe we really got to pay attention to him. And so John immediately takes those thoughts because you can see how the people can see the wisdom of his words and, and the power of his words. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, you have seen nothing yet. What you have seen is just a man, a voice crying in the wilderness. I am not even worthy to unloose the man's sandals 
who is about to come to teach you. You are about to have the most transforming experience you could ever imagine, and it's not coming from me. So his fifth message is watch and wait, for the truest greatness is yet coming. It's coming. It's literally right around the corner. And when it comes to you, I want you to be ready for it. So you can see how John was totally absorbed in his work, in his mission to prepare the nation for the Messiah. Again, God is sovereign. Love your neighbor. Respect your neighbor. Use strength and power justly and with contentment. And then watch and wait because true greatness, once you put these things in order, can now affect your lives. So what is the sixth greatness ingredient? Oh, I'm sorry. Truth? It's truth. Go ahead. It's truth-driven conviction. I should have said that and said, now, Jonathan, what does that mean, <laughs> truth-driven conviction? So go ahead. Well, Rick, the most telling application of greatness is in the value of what it opens its recipients to. In this case, they were open to receive their Messiah. See, the most telling application of greatness on any level in any circumstance is the value of what it's opening its recipients to. John was not offering the people free popcorn. You know, he wasn't offering them a movie pass or a car wash or something like that. He was offering them life-changing salvation if they would absorb and take what he gave them to get ready to receive it. That shows you the greatness of John the Baptist because he was preparing the people for the coming of the one who would not only save those individuals, Jonathan, but would save every man, woman, and child who ever lived. That is a job that has to be done with true, powerful greatness, truth-driven conviction, not just any conviction. Not just, not, not just conviction that feels good. It's driven by utter truth. That's what John the Baptist had. I mean, this guy really stood out in a crowd, even before meeting Jesus. He did stand out, and for the best of reasons. John was absolutely mighty in the hand of God. How did Jesus react to John's might and position? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly, but we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. So the interactions between Jesus and John the Baptist were unique as they were happening at the most major crossroad in world history. John was the last of the prophets of the law, and Jesus was the first of the heavenly call. The respect and honor between them was powerful and productive. And it, Jonathan, it was everything we could have ever imagined it would be and more. And we only have little snippets of what their relationship was. But you can see by these little snippets of their relationship that there was something mighty here, something, something deep and profound. And the, the, the interactions painted the understanding that each of them had and the individual greatness that each of them showed. Another quote on greatness, this time this quote is from Anne Frank. Human greatness does not lie in wealth or power, but in character and goodness. People are just people. And all people have faults and shortcomings, but all of us are born with a basic goodness. And, and I love the part of that quote, greatness 
lies, and character, and goodness. And in this case, it's character, goodness, and godliness. And for us, Jonathan, that's the kind of greatness we should seek, the godly greatness that doesn't seek self-praise uh, or adoration, but seeks to give praise and honor to God and God only. That's the greatness that we're talking about. That's the greatness of John the Baptist. Let's go back to Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in his sermon on serving. And, you know, in this next soundbite, he's thinking about his funeral. And you think, well, that's not a very good thing to think about, but just listen to this. Because he has a way of, you know, putting things into perspective and saying, yeah, you know, this is a good way to think. Every now and then, I guess we all think realistically yes, about that day when we will be victimized with what is life's final common denominator. That's something that we call death. We all think about it, and every now and then I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral, and I don't think of it in a morbid sense. And every now and then I ask myself, what is it that I would want said and I leave the word to you this morning. If any of you are around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. And we'll continue that in the next segment as to what he, and he gets very specific and very powerful and very profound and it's the sound of greatness as he describes the things that are ultimately most important. And that's really what we want to get to today in our podcast is what is most important in relation to greatness. And we're going through these uh, um, greatness ingredients. And, and Jonathan, so far we've laid out several that just come to life when you look at the context of and the life and the work of John the Baptist. So let's go a little bit further now in John's uh, experience. John was masterfully teaching, challenging, and baptizing the crowds. He was the lone voice of God's direction in the midst of the clamor and noise of a society that had lost its way. And then Jesus came, changed everything. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And, and let's read just verse four, uh, 13 and 14 to begin with. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So right there, you see the power of John. First of all, he recognizes Jesus. He recognizes him. He knows here is the man that my entire life has been focused on introducing. Everything about me has come to this moment, and now here he is. And Jesus, to John's utter surprise, walks up to him to be baptized. And John's like, no, 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 wait, 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 time out. Hold the phone, just wait a minute. You they didn't have phones. I know. Back <laughs> <laughs> Hold the tablet. You know the, the, the you know this the, 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 the parchment. I don't know. Hold something. Okay, just stop already. Time out. What he's saying is, I need your baptism. I need to be to recognize my own sins. What are you doing? I can't baptize you. So what does Jesus say to him? Let it be so now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. 
So then John said, okay, it didn't take a long explanation. It took some simple words of Jesus that maybe were not clear enough except to say, this is the way it must be. Trust me. And John's immediate heart response is, I trust you. I trust you implicitly. Whatever you say, I will do. So what happens? And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And the power of that experience must have been utterly dramatic. And so John is there. And again, John, think about this. John, for the last six months or so, has been center stage. Everything, people have come to see John the Baptist. They've come to challenge him. They've come to be baptized by him. They've come to learn of him. He has been the teacher. He has been the man. And he has fulfilled that. And now, in a moment, he understands that this is the beloved Son of God in whom God is well pleased. I am just here to introduce him. Folks, stop looking at me. Start looking at him. This, he, is what I am all about. John never questioned his role or his respect for his master Jesus. Jesus' arrival signaled John's end. And I often wonder what John really thought would happen once Jesus came. Okay, okay, you know, like, I, I know my job. I'm supposed to get the, the people ready for Messiah. Now, once he comes, you, you know, you wonder, like, okay, now what's my job? Exactly. You know, am I going to be a fish out of water? What? And, you know, and we know that John kept on preaching and kept on talking to the people about the Messiah, about the Messiah, about Jesus, and about repenting and, and, uh, until he couldn't do it any longer. But you wonder what would have gone through his head at that point in time. Because, you know, even though he has such greatness in him, he's still an imperfect human being. And he's still going to try to figure things out as human beings do. So we, we, we go through and we uh, can see that, you know, there may have been some questions, but here's the, this next verse, Jonathan, to me is, is one of the absolute highlights of John's life. John chapter 3, verses 25 to 30 is going to show us clearly how John saw his role in relation to Jesus. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Okay, so so here's what happens. They're saying, hey, John, Rabbi, I mean, they have great respect for him. This This guy that you've been talking about, everybody seems to be flocking to him. You know, have you noticed your numbers are down? You know, I... <laughs> Because, you know, from a human standpoint, that's what we would notice. You're right. You know, you're not gathering the crowds you used to. You don't seem to be the popular one anymore. You're okay, but, you know, have you noticed that? I mean, are you okay with all of this? And here's, this is, this, John, Jonathan, this is just, this is, this, this, these next verses are the beginning of showing you what greatness really is. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Okay, so his first point, his first point is, can't receive anything unless it's been given from heaven. I've already told you I'm not the Christ. I am just his introduction. I am just the one who prepares everybody for him. 
And then, then he shows you true greatness. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So he talks about Jesus as the bridegroom, and he says to them, I'm the best man. I'm standing by the bridegroom, and when I hear his voice, I rejoice. I feel such honor to stand up for him. And he says, so this joy of mine has been made full. I don't know that we ever think about John the Baptist working with joy. You think about him working with passion and zeal and fervor and strength and challenging and looking you in your eye and, and, and being, you know, being firm and, and even almost angry sometimes. But he says, so this joy of mine has been made full. I mean, and then he says, he has to increase. I have to decrease. decrease. That's what I came here to do. What a powerful, powerful lesson that is. What a, that is what a guy. <laughs> well, that's greatness. You recognize what you're supposed to do, and you do your job, and you and, and you give everything over to honor where where it absolutely totally belongs. John's role was like that of a shooting star, a dazzling light that lives for but an instant. In his case, it lit the way to find man's eternal light. But you know, a shooting star is brilliant for a moment. And John was brilliant for a moment, as he was supposed to be. Absolutely. So this seventh greatness ingredient, Jonathan, is humility. The most telling accomplishment of greatness is the humility and selflessness with which it is administered. John clearly loved his Lord more than his own role. And that's the beauty of it. He clearly loved his, his Lord, and it was okay. It was great to be the best man. You know, you're, you're not the center of attention. Look, I was, I, I was the best man at your wedding. Yes, you were. And I remember standing there, and I remember that feeling of utter uh, pride of, of, of being able to stand next to you as you married your beloved. And the sense of, I get to support that that is what John had even a thousand times greater because here he was supporting the bridegroom who would take away the sin of the world. And John's head didn't get all blown out of proportion. He was so humble, so clear, and so directed. And, and, and that is true greatness. Now, look, later on, John would lose his life as a result of his influence and his unrelenting stand for righteousness. Now, after he was gone, Jesus, Peter, James, and John experienced the transfiguration vision. It's right after this vision that Jesus vividly established John's position as in the company of Moses and Elijah. And this is another really powerful thing about the greatness of John the Baptist. Because you think about it, you know, he was on the scene essentially for six months plus, And then he's, he's beheaded. He's, he's, he's dead. He's gone. He's off, off the scene. And you think, well, that that seems so short. But in this incredible vision of the Mount of Transfiguration, John is actually mentioned in relation to that. Let's go to Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, 
tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whether they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So they they saw this vision, this amazing vision, where there's a vision of a Moses and vision of Elijah and Jesus in a glorified state and the voice from heaven and all of that. And Jesus, after this vision, tells them, don't tell anybody about this until I have actually risen from the dead. And so they're saying, so that now, now the disciples are asking, well, okay, explain this all to us. And, you know, he says, because, you know, we we get it that you're you're the one, but the you know the scriptures say you know Elijah must come to re- restore all things. What about that? And he says, I, I tell you, Elijah already has come. And they understood when he said that he was talking about John the Baptist. Now he had been beheaded not too too long before this, so you see this incredible connection, this incredible prophetic connection between Elijah in this picture, in this transfiguration, and then a relationship to John the Baptist. Talk about greatness. There it is, right right before your face. So our eighth greatness ingredient. Now the seventh one was humility, okay? The humility that, that John shows when he says, this joy of mine has been made full. With that humility, Jonathan, a lot of times we, we picture people who are humble as having no backbone. backbone. Right, absolutely. That's what most people see in humility. Right, but that is not the case. This eighth greatness ingredient is toughness. The most telling characteristic of greatness is the relentless toughness and grit it requires to be successful. John stood strong and often alone. John was plain and simple tough. He would not be shaken. He would not be moved. He would live a life that was unique. He would stand for something that he believed in, that he was taught from a child up, that God's influence helped him to understand and grasp, and then he applied himself to living it. He was tough. But, you know, and, and, and a lot of times when we think about, you know, you think about tough, you think about somebody like who's a wrestler or a football player or somebody like that, you know, that, you know and the, you, know, you can see the anger and the rage in their eyes and all of that. Now, John had passion and strength in his eyes, but he had such humility and such joy in that toughness. But don't mess with him. Do not mess with him because he will not back down. And so you have this incredible humility with this incredible toughness together. I, I think it's such a great, great combination for us to look at and to, and to, to aspire to. How can we have that kind of spiritual toughness in the, in the context of humility? And it's kind of interesting that humility crops up before the toughness. You know, you've got to have the humility to be able to be tough in the right way. So what is John here? John is tough, he is humble, he's driven, and he's clear. And you know what? This is how I want to be when I grow up. He certainly is a powerful example. John's greatness in fulfilling God's will is utterly inspirational. What else could there be left to say? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind, 
It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. There is one more ingredient to John's greatness that completes it as a perfect example for us. To illustrate this last ingredient, we need to go back into John's life shortly before he was executed. He found himself in prison, and this was an incarceration from which he would never again see the light of day. So it's at this point that, and we're saving this ingredient for last, Jonathan, because it's an unlikely ingredient of greatness, and probably we wouldn't consider it too much as an ingredient for greatness. But again, because John shows it to us, we want to talk about it and think about it. First, a, uh, another quote on greatness by Cahil Gibran. Keep me away from the wisdom which does not cry, the philosophy which does not laugh, and the greatness which does not bow before children. And again, that reminds me of the humility that we just uh, expressed with John the Baptist. So, before we get back to the story of John the Baptist and this final greatness ingredient, which is very unlikely in, in the minds of many, I would think, let's go one last time to Martin Luther King Jr. and his sermon on serving. Remember he said, I was thinking about my funeral, and he said, you know, and if somebody gives a eulogy, tell them not to speak too long. And now he's going to tell them specifically about what to say and what not to say. And again, this is a reflection of true greatness. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the wall question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. What a powerful message. Don't tell them about all that stuff, about the, the, the awards and all of the recognition and the, and the adulation. Don't tell them that. Tell them that I tried to serve, that I tried to love, that I tried to give and to give and to give. And in telling us that, he was saying to us, you also do the same. And what a great example of true greatness. In, in putting things in perspective. So let's go back to the true greatness of John and this final ingredient, this final greatness ingredient. We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 11, and this takes place uh, during the imprisonment of John. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Okay. Now, that can come as a surprise. Like, wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. It can, <laughs> for sure. 
And he's questioning if Jesus is the Messiah. And he sends messengers to specifically ask Jesus. And you say, well, wait, what happened to him? Well, folks, he's in prison. Again, you know, sometimes I think, Jonathan, our expectations just simply don't dovetail with the reality that we're going to be part of. And the result can be genuine doubt. And how often do we have in our own minds the way it's supposed to work out? You know, perhaps, and I don't know because I wasn't there, but perhaps John thought that once Jesus comes on the scene, I will become his greatest follower, his greatest advocate, and I will continue to bring people to repentance and bring them right to Jesus. And Jesus and I will walk together for years, and I will, and I will, I will work to make sure that they see him as their Messiah. Maybe that's what he thought. And here he's sitting in prison, and there's no way out. And so it's not what he expected. And as a human, he just simply had doubts. Well, wasn't the expectation of of the Jews that Messiah was going to be this great king to free them from Roman bondage, to take them to be the world leader, to point the nations in the right direction to God? Right. They were looking for victory, weren't they? Right. And they were going to get victory, but just not then. That's right. It was just going to take several thousand years, but nobody knew that at that point. So you're right. The expectation did not equal the reality, and that creates doubt. So it's interesting. These servants of John come to Jesus, and they ask him. And Jesus' answer to them is not just a mere, yes, don't worry about it. Yeah, tell him I'm the guy. That's not what Jesus says. His answer Jesus' answer to these these emissaries of John was laden with hope, prophetic fulfillment, and with personal blessing. See, Jesus is going to give this answer, Jonathan. I just want to say before you read it in in Matthew chapter 11 and uh, verses 4 and 5, that Jesus knows and reads John's heart even when he's far away from him. He knows what he needs. And so this is what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So Jesus gives an answer that reiterates prophecy. Blind receive sight. He's quoting prophecy. John would know that. The poor have the gospel preached to them. He's quoting prophecy. John would know that. He's healing the people. He's teaching. He's giving them what he came to do. So he doesn't just say, yes, I'm the one. He says, remind him of the power of God that works through me, and he will know. And then he says his last words to them before they leave to go back to John are, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. John, you did not take offense at me. You are blessed. That is his message of hope and blessing. Even though John is in prison, even though it's not working out the way John thought it would, there is hope, prophecy, and blessing in Jesus' answer. So, Jesus sends them away with that incredible answer for John. Now, John is going to die very soon. After sending an answer back to John, Jesus testifies to the crowd of the faith and strength and greatness of John. So now, John can't hear this, He's not doing it for John's benefit, but he's doing it for the crowd's benefit because they heard that John may have had a doubt. And so 
Jesus is very plain to the crowd after John's emissaries leave. He says, John was a prophet. He was appointed specifically specifically by God to send them to salvation, to send them to me, Jesus. And here's how he says it. Again, we're in Matthew 11, uh, verses 7 through 10, and this is reiterating the greatness of John the Baptist. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and one who was more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus begins, you know, and, and again, in my imagination, I see this scene, these men come to Jesus asking, are you the one John the Baptist wants to know he's in prison? And Jesus gives them the encouragement, sends them on the way. Then he turns to the rest of the crowd and he says, all right, look, you, you also, John, in the wilderness, what'd you go to see? Did you go to see some reed shaking in the wind? No. That's not what you went to see. Do you go see somebody uh, clothed in all this, you know, fine, soft, luxurious, comfortable clothing? No, that's not what you went to see. You went to see a prophet. Oh, yeah. You went, you knew you went to see a prophet. And I am telling you, he was not just any prophet. He was a prophet who was prophesied about. And his mission was to bring you salvation. So he builds up the greatness of John in just a few words. And with that contrast to say, you didn't go to see somebody who was, you know, uh, so the average person. You went to see somebody different, and that's exactly what you got. Jesus then captures the glory of John the Baptist and the privileges of his work in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, this is an amazing statement. I say to you that of all of those born of women, John the Baptist is the greatest man. Yet, he was least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he, but he's giving John this incredible uh, uh, positioning, showing how powerful and important the work and great the work of John the Baptist was. Rick, uh, in verse 7, where it says, as these men were going away, I wonder, as they're walking away, and Jesus is speaking loud to the crowds as if they could hear as they're still walking away, <laughs> and they're listening to the value that John brought. And to me, the way it was worded, they might have been able to hear these words as they were turning around and going. So what you're saying is, you know, we're walking away and you say, Rick, walk a little slower. Wait, I got to hear this. Yeah, yeah. I would have <laughs> slowed down a little bit. And guess what? They're going to take some of this information to John to say, you were faithful and, yeah. and Jesus loves you. <laughs> well, you know, and, and very well could be. You know, the, the, the point is that Jesus minced no words when it came to John. And he showed them how important John was. Now remember, this is in the context of John's doubt. And it was a great doubt. 
So you say, well, okay, we're, we said we're, we're building up to this last greatness ingredient. Okay, what's this great greatness ingredient that we, that we put to the end that we took his life out of order just so we could talk about? This last greatness ingredient, Jonathan, for us is imperfection. That's the ingredient, imperfection. Now, give, get us started on the explanation. All right. The most telling victory of true greatness in our broken world comes as a result of battling through one's personal doubts and fears to accomplish that which one is called to do. So this final greatness ingredient is imperfection, is not getting it always right, is not being perfect, is not always being exactly on target. And that's one of the ingredients of greatness. And John proves that to us because Jesus himself says here, he has accomplished one of the greatest mission, missions that a man has ever had to accomplish. And he's doubting. And it's okay because he's just a human being. He's imperfect. But and Rick, this really brings us hope. Yes. As we try to bring praise, honor, and glory to God, and we trip up and we fumble and we take a side step, and, but it's okay because first of all, we can receive forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And so thankful for that. And then we can start fresh and move forward again, just like John in his doubt here. And, and, and you're right. And, and that's why, to me, this is one of the most important ingredients to greatness, because sometimes I think we get the feeling that if you don't do it perfectly, you know, if, in terms of greatness before God, then it's not going to be good enough. And folks, that just isn't the case. But having said all of that, don't take the ingredient of, of, of imperfection and make it the centerpiece. An excuse? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't make it an excuse. Make it a reason. Make it a reason to dig deeper, to work harder, to, to go back to all of those other ingredients and put them in perspective so you can stand more firmly, more clearly, more, more straightforward in what it is you're called to do. You know, take, and I'm just going to rattle through the ingredients, Jonathan, take circumstantial preparation, whatever our upbringing was, whatever the circumstances were behind that. Take access to necessary tools. In John's case, it was the Holy Spirit. In our case, it's the experiences of life. Take experiential grooming, being groomed by the things that you learn and that happen, whether they're good or bad. Take discipline, that raw decision to say, I'm just going to move forward. Take clear, defined purpose, clearly defined purpose. That clearly defined purpose has to be scripturally based to have greatness before God. Take truth-driven conviction, not just conviction, truth, godly truth-driven conviction, and apply it in our lives. Take humility, deep, honest, sober, clear humility. Take toughness that's built on that humility, and now take imperfection and put those all together. And what you have is a recipe for incredible greatness for the average person. We can be great before God doing his work, and it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about, just like with John, it's about having our joy being fulfilled. As a matter of fact, let's go back to that, because to me, that epitomizes the greatness of John. Let's go back to John describing his calling and the utter joy of being humble in service, in the service of God's plan. Back to John chapter 3, 29 to 33. We're going to read a few more verses than we read before. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What, we, he, what he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. And really what John is saying after he says, uh, my joy, of this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He then goes on this little, little uh, preaching tirade about recognizing the power of Jesus himself. Not the power of John the Baptist, but the power and positioning of Jesus himself as coming down from heaven, as being the one, as being testified to by God and about God and through God and for God's work. So John, in this realization of his joy being full, is really saying, I see God's will in this, and everything I live for, everything I am about, is because of the will of God. Folks, that... That is true greatness. So the next time you're thinking about greatness, think about the exceptional character, devotion, passion, and work of John the Baptist. Think about his focus. Think about his discipline. Think about his humility. And remember, he was imperfect, just like you and just like me, and yet God saw fit to adorn him with a mantle of blessing and privilege. And Jonathan, we want to be great in God's sight doing God's work. That's it. God gets all the credit. We don't need any. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his work. It's about his will. It's about keeping God first. That is the lesson of the greatness of John the Baptist. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we truly hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We really love talking to you about such a subject that can be such inspiration for us in these days of trial and error. We want to be great in the sight of God. So until next week, John the Baptist showed us what greatness can be. Think about it. Folks, remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. Make sure to download our app. Search Christian Questions in your app store. Meanwhile, we look forward to bringing you another new podcast next week. Think about greatness. <laughs>